Unsexy Business with Jamie Waller. Hi, this is Jamie Waller and welcome to my new series of podcasts called Unsexy Business. The podcast ties in with the release of my new book of the same name, details on that later. In this series, I'll be talking to a range of business owners and entrepreneurs. This isn't about Silicon Valley style corporations or the latest tech initiative. This is about traditional business models, thoughts and plans that could easily have begun in a pub or your own garden shed. Simple ideas that have become multi-million pound companies. It's these stories that interest me. From plumbers to parking, penny suites to second-hand cars, I'll be meeting the people behind some of Britain's most successful businesses. Welcome to Unsexy Business. My guest this week is Charlie Mullins. Charlie is the founder of Pimlico Plumbers. He started as an apprentice in 1979, the year of my birth. He then started Pimlico Plumbers armed with just a toolbox and a battered old van. I began by asking Charlie how he initially found work as an apprentice. As an apprentice, you don't earn two bob, you earn nothing. I think the most I ever earned as an apprentice was uh, £19 a week. Uh, and, and that was the reason I wanted to be self-employed. Because, you know, coming from a, as an apprentice, you don't earn nothing. And then I immediately, you know, could have carried on with the company as a plumber. Um, but then you'd only get like a, a next rate up and improvers rate. So I immediately went self-employed and started um, getting customers, you know, knowing that that would be the way to get money. So I started off with shop windows, which really wasn't that successful. But if you got one or two calls a week, it was great. Uh, it then progressed to the local paper. And that seemed, you know, incredible to put an ad out, out all of a sudden as a, an apprentice. And now you're advertising for work. It still seemed expensive because you, you couldn't really tell what return you're going to get. And, you, you know, at that time, you're probably competing with 20 or 30 other plumbers. But something I remember making the ad stand out saying, if you want a plumber now, you know, ring this number. And that seemed to attract, um, you know, the immediate calls that people had been let down before. Building up a little bit of work, and it must have been fairly successful because fairly promptly... We, we we had some rented rooms and and we moved out. We bought an house fairly fairly quickly. Um, we bought this sort of rundown house out in um, Lee, out in Kent, and then that was it. Then I started advertising out there. That started building up like a, a local sort of stuff. And what I noticed out there was, you know, they started using you on a regular basis, but they would wait till, you know, maybe if they used you sort of now, they say, oh, we'll, we'll call you back in the summer and have, you know, a new basin fitted or. You know, we call you back and then we'll have the bath done. It was all bitty stuff. So that was building up. And then, and then you know, one day prior to that, I'd been working with Pat Fox, like Sammy Fox, the model's dad. And we'd worked on a company together just after my apprenticeship where we'd done some subcontracting. And we got really friendly. And me and him was doing a bit of, bit of you know, he was a carpenter, I was a plumber. So he'd get some work, call me in. I'd get some work, call him in. And it worked quite well. He, he rang me one day, he was working up in Pimlico. But he started, it's called Pimlico Properties, who was a friend of his. And he said, look, you fancy coming up here, um, you know, we've got a decent bit of work up here, converting some flats or something, or converting houses into flats. You know, he, he said, you know, come up here and, and do some work. So anyway, basically he started coming up here, doing a bit in Pimlico. And I noticed the difference of the money. The, the change in money was like chalk and cheese. It was like up here, they wanted to spend the money. That progressed quite well, and then and then there was getting a lot of it, quite quite a lot of these uh, stuff up here. So I dropped all the Kent stuff out. I decided there's no money there. I might as well stay up here. I was on my own for quite a few years up here, but I was doing a bit in Pimlico with Pat, and I was 
creeping off to do these other emergency jobs. I think I, I tried to make out that I was look more established, so I put, you know, C. Mullins and Son or something. You know, I was quite young at the time, so I wanted to make it look like I'd been around for a long time. And, you know, wherever you turn up a job and you look young, people's doubting whether you're going to do the job. And um, so there was a lot going against you. And then there was a company up here called Problems, that was right, and, and it was like an agency. And people would pay into them to get a, to get a babysitter, to get a plumber, to get a, a cook, to get a chauffeur, a gardener. And um, I signed up with them, and that was probably a turning point. And, um, you know, I think I used to get 25 quid a job. So 25 quid, any small job that they give you, um, you charge the customer 25 quid. And I had to pay them a very small fee out of it, you know, once a week, um, a fee. And then all of a sudden I'm around the Pimlico area again and um, working with Pat Fox and we had a, a good couple of weeks' work there. And then all of a sudden he went off to help his uh, daughter become this page three model girl. And, um, you know, he never really came back to work. So we was now getting very consistent in Pimlico. Then I got known as the Pimlico plumber. You know, I was working in Pimlico and people say, you know, they say, so look, I'll get the plumber around, he's the Pimlico plumber, he's always in Pimlico. That was quite good. I didn't really get it at the time. I didn't think it was going to lead to anything else, but it just sounded all right. You know, you're the Pimlico plumber. And then he offered me a room in the basement. Yeah, I just didn't get why, you know what I mean? Um, and, you know, he's saying, look, you can have a telephone in there. And I'm thinking, telephone? Why would I want a telephone? You know, everything was going at home. My wife was <laughs> taking calls and I think I had a pager at the time and it paid you through and ring this number. Just didn't make sense, you know, but... You know, after like a lot of worrying and sleepless nights, as silly as it sounds now, but I'm thinking, God, then get an office and, you know, it's going to be the ruin of me. You know, why would I do that? You know, how can I be in the office and be at a job? And I just couldn't work out that you employed people. I just couldn't understand that. I'd get the office off him. I can't remember how much it would be. And I set up like a, an answering machine in there. You know, and I think you, you, you set it up, you go and work and pop in every couple of hours and get the messages. And that was working quite well. Going back, oh, this, someone's rung me. You know, I was advertising in Pimlico, and um, this answering machine seemed a great idea, you know. Seemed, it was great, but I kept popping back every hour to check the messages. Have I had a call? Can you ring this woman? I had a, a friend of mine, and some of the... Because Pat couldn't do the carpentry no longer. He had gone off to help Sammy. Um, I took on a carpenter, a mate of mine, and... Um, he sort of took Pat's place, so he was doing these jobs. You know, I was keeping him busy because he, he could sort of pop back to the thing, check the messages, he could stay at the job while we're working, he could go out and get the materials. So I take him on, and um, it gives me more time to keep popping back to the office. And then, you know, we're getting busier and busier, and then there was another guy, a plumber fella, I think it was his brother actually, and I started giving him work, you know, in this area. And, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, you know, this, this is a lot easier in the sense that, you know, it gives me a bit of time. But often the three of us will be at one job or doing two jobs. And it's all progressed from there. We got busier, busier and busier. And then I think I was still using other people, you know, and there's probably about three or four or five of us. And, you know, now all of a sudden I'm spending an odd hour in the office, hour of the morning, hour of the night, hour in the daytime. Then all of a sudden it's me, let's take on someone to answer the phone. So I took on this uh, retired woman school teacher part time you know she was coming at certain hours answering the phone and she wasn't no good at it to be honest you know she was too old and too stuttery and messing more things up and you know that just made me realise that wrong person 
Um, and then I took on another part-time lady to answer the phone. You know, it, it sort of progressed from there. As soon as we had someone answering the phone, it started to grow. Having a, a proper base is undoubtedly the way to start a business. And then all of a sudden we saw, in next to no time, we built a team up of about 10 people. It all started getting very involved, if I'm being honest. And once I stayed in the office, you know, I could work things and plan it better, you know what I mean? Someone would take the call, but I could say to this plumber, you go to this job and I'd book the jobs. And it's just the planning of it, I think. Coming, coming off the tools was, well, it was the only way and the best way to come away from it. And then all of a sudden it was running like a proper business, you know, it all of a sudden became proper. And I think we had about 10 or 12 people full-time doing work for us other people doing other things and I'm still going out but looking at the jobs and, and coming back and uh, you know estimating the work but not actually doing the work probably one of the hardest things to do I'd say it, it, for me in the business was to come away from the tools because I'd always been used to that never been used to being in an office and I hated the office if I'm being honest I was like a tiger in a cage you know I couldn't wait to get out to be honest it, it, around about the late 80s was a recession and Right up until then, I thought we was doing great. You know, really was great. But the problem I had was was I had so many people that was dead wood with me. And, um, you know, I, I didn't realise we, we were still in the basement over at uh, Pimlico where we started off. And uh, I bought a premises in, in Lambeth to move into, uh, you know, to, to take the business into. And to be honest, it, it went wrong for me because I, I borrowed a quarter of a million pounds off the bank. I've never borrowed money in my life, and I, I never will again off the bank, but I borrowed a quarter of a million pounds at 17% interest, which was madness, absolutely madness looking back. And I was conned into it by a financial advisor. I've never had financial advisor since, never will have one. And what had happened, as the business progressed, I changed from my, my small account and went to a, another account, and he put me onto a financial advisor. I left the bank I was with and he said, look, if you go to this bank, they give you a quarter of a million pounds, Charlie. I wanted to buy this premises. Someone was telling me all I've got to do, I hadn't even met this bank manager, turn up and they're going to give you a quarter of a million pounds. I've got to resist that. And I'm thinking, who in their right mind is going to give me a quarter of a million pounds to buy a premises? But they, they said they would and they did. So it all went wrong. The financial advisor advised me I was paying him money. Business was going okay, but then I borrowed this quarter of a million pounds and uh, that was December 90. According to the bank, I was the best thing since sliced bread. Business was great, everything was wonderful. And then I went off to Australia for a month at Christmas, bought a brand new 25 grand car in cash, and I worked brand new. And everything was great, it seemed. But I must have been the only one out there that didn't know there was a recession coming. Because every, you know, every, I went to Australia, I come back in January after about a month, and the bank was on my case saying, you know, this premises you bought ain't worth the money. And what we had done in between that, I gutted the premises with all the, I had loads of guys by now, probably 30, 40 guys working for us. And we gutted the premises, going to refurbish it and make it our offices. And when I come back, you know, the bank said, oh, you know, you've gutted the premises, we're unhappy with it. Um, it the asset ain't worth the money no more. And so the, the same value came down. He valued the pro premises at £50,000. Yeah. And, and it was only a little while earlier that he valued it at 225000 And he, they said, because you've ripped it all apart, someone would have to spend a load of money to put it right. And all of a sudden, they wanted their money back, as simple as that. You know, I'd, use, I'd had another premises I bought up in Camberwell, 
which I'd bought for £60,000, another shop and, and a building that was using for a yard. I put that up as guarantor. All of a sudden, they said, look, it ain't worth it. We want some money back. And they started. And I had overdraft at the time. I think it was £80,000 overdraft. And we had a lot of money owing at the time. At that time, running the business, I thought we was doing well, but we had a lot of money owing by customers. And, um, you know, I think that was about eight or fifty or 60000 And the bank just said, look, you know, we ain't happy with things. We're going to stop you overdraft. You know, and, and I just, I didn't really understand. If I'm being honest, I don't think I understood business enough. I really didn't. And I'm saying, but you can't just stop it. Whatever we can, we do what we want, but you can't, you know. And then, you know, he'd do things like, it was 80,000, you say, okay, as from Monday, it's 70,000. And then it was six days down to 50. And that was like crippleness. All the checks started to bounce and go wrong. And, you know, we couldn't pay the suppliers and... It just crippled us, the bank crippled us, all, all because, um, you know, of the asset weren't worth the money no more. Just no, no way out of it. The bank, was, the bank was just so unreasonable. You know, it was just incredible. Imagine we've gone from the best thing since sliced bread to sort of the, the biggest toss of going overnight. That's what it seemed. And I don't necessarily think it was my fault. I think this... You know, the high interest rate, the recession, the fact that we gutted the building really didn't matter in the sense, you know, the building, the asset was still there. Um, that was just being arseholes, I think, really. You're listening to Unsexy Business, and my guest this week is Charlie Mullins, the CEO and founder of Pimlico Plumbers. We owed, um, you know, we owed the Inland Revenue, we owed suppliers, and, and it was, it, I don't know, it just somehow got out of proportion because of, oh, because of the, the, the overdraft they took that away. And, um, you know, people was jumping shit. And then we go to see a liquidator who owes him a favour. And the liquidator says quite clearly, how much do you owe? And he worked it all out. And I think we, we was in debt for about half a million pounds with suppliers, a quarter of a million in England revenue. Um, which sounds crazy. I just don't know how it built up. I just don't know how it all went wrong. You know, I look back now and I'm thinking... What, what went wrong for us? Yeah, and then we had a few, a lot of customers knocking us for some big money. Um, you know, there was, there were, you know, the recession was kicking in. People weren't paying people. People would stop using you. And, and somehow there's, I owe half a million. Well, it's, it's just heartbreaking, to be honest. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And, and by this time, I'd, I'd built, bought a couple of more houses over the time. So my house value had, had gone up. And, you know... And that's life side of it seemed to be good because life seemed to be good, but I didn't realise that how much we was behind in the business. You know, I'll probably be honest with you, maybe I was oblivious to it. You know, I knew how to bring the money in, but I think what I didn't know it was was you know to make sure we paid things. And we see the liquidator and he says, um, "How much have you got? Nothing." Oh, so he said, "Well, it's not really difficult." He said. You need to close it all down, he said, and I can have you up and running in about three or four days, very similar name. And my accountant didn't fancy that, and I didn't fancy that. He said, it's not as clear-cut as that, he said. And, and I, you know, I said to him, to be honest, I don't think I'd have the art to go again. Like, you know, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go. I didn't want to open up under a very similar name and trying to be pretending, you know what I mean? I think you either got to do it right or you're not. But he was coming out of all these little fiddly things that might work, might not. And then he said, but the problem you have, he said, you might lose your ass at the end of it because all these people are going to want, you know... Now, at this time, my wife didn't know that, if you know what I mean. I didn't really... I kept all this from her, to be honest. 
and I kept a lot of it from her, if I'm being honest. I didn't want her to, to know. Anyhow, he came and said, you know, and I said, I always believe in now in second opinion. He said, so we went to another uh, liquidator, and the liquidator said, well, you know, million pound business, yeah, it's good. And, you know, if you can turn the corner on it. And he said, you know, rather than just chuck the towel in, he said, you might as well fight for it. And, and we come away from there, somehow, some plan we had to fight for it. You know, I think we've got scheduled payments with Inland Revenue, scheduled, scheduled payments with um, uh, suppliers. And by that time, all the people had jumped ships, so all the rubbish had gone. I was left with, you know, I was still taking people on, but they were, they was of a different type of person. You know, they weren't, they was, I was more serious taking someone on. If I would give someone a job now, he had to produce. So we worked a deal out that um, everybody must pay there and then. So when they booked a job, you must pay. And I worked a deal out with anybody who worked for me. If you don't collect the money, I'm not paying you. You know, so they made sure they collected. And it totally changed it. So all of a sudden we had, like, cash flow all of a sudden. We had money again. That's what you've seen. And, of course, paying off the debts. And then what I'd done, I sold, I sold the one building. I remember sold, selling the building. You know, he told me to put it in an auction. I sold it privately. I think I got 90000 for it. And he told me to take forty-five grand for it at the bank. I got 90000 I took that off the loan straight away. And then I paid some more money off the loan. I paid off the loan and then... This new accountant got someone else to take this loan over at a lower rate. So we, we paid the bank off completely. We borrowed money at a lot lower rate, the loan. We got that. And basically, we paid the bank all their money back and got them off their back. You know what I mean? So now I, I, I have the building starting to worth a quarter of a million again. And I only owed about 100 grand on it. I was a lot more serious, a lot more writer. Uh, I got rid of all the people that was friends, all the people that you know, you thought was okay. And I pretty much just started again, but I was a lot more serious, you know. You know, I think I realised in business that, you know, I couldn't go through that again, do you know what I mean? I, if I'm being honest, I still didn't think I was going to get through it, but the accountant was, was really good, and he sort of said that, you know, for the next four or five years, things are going to be tough. He said, but if you get through it, and I always remember that, if you get through it, you'll come out the other side, he said, so much stronger. It just progressed, so we went from one million in 1990, uh, and I think in the year 2000, I can't remember what we got to, the figure, uh, I can't remember the figure, but it, it sort of grew nice and sort of gradual, very gradual, and it was like two mil, then three mil, then four mil, and what I, I think my turning point was, I learned to trust people, I learned to delegate, I learned that there's some good people out there. So I started employing you know, not because I liked them, but because they was good at their job or because, you know, you, you could tell that they knew what they was talking about. I think we went pretty steady up until... I mean, we bought this building in 2000, so within 10 years of the recession, we were all of a sudden really doing well again. I, you know, I can't believe myself now. In 2000, things are booming. We've we got a railway arch of 3,000 square foot for our mechanics, and the building was two and a half thousand, so we had five thousand square foot, and it was just, it, yeah, we was outgrowing it, but things were good. It, but we was running a business like a business should be run. You know, it was, um, it, it could have been easy. I mean, you can't go from even in ten years from going bust to to everything's wonderful. But I know we had paid for the building, and I, I was more and more vans were coming on. I was getting better people. And, and I remember like putting, you know, trusting people and delegating, getting good people on board. 
you know, and then uh, as I used to be more harder and harsher putting things in place, I then learned that I didn't have to be because I get other people to do it, you know what I mean? And I learned, I probably learned the word delegate, you know, you know, I'd sack someone in seconds, wouldn't, wouldn't care less, you know what I mean? But then, you know, I got other people to do it, do you know what I mean? And, and, and they was doing it in a better way, you know. And, and, and I just realised, you know, it's more professional way. My way was just, look, it ain't going to work, let's call it a day, you know what I mean? You know, in the end, you, you get into a few couple of arguments, but, you know, I sort of, you know, got a reputation. I weren't going to be scared of it, you know, I weren't going to, you know, I just wasn't, I remember, you know, I remember one guy and he was a massive fella and I had to sack him over the road he'd messed his job up and he was going through a bad time with his wife and everybody was like scared of the guy and you know I remember him at the can and I said look we're going to have to call it a day and he was like banging the can no no you know like going maniac you know maniac and uh, you know and, and you know and I'm moving back and I think God. and then all of a sudden he started getting personal I know we was going to sort it out anyway. and I see how he backed down do you know what I mean yeah. you know I think thinking so I ain't having the personal side of it and and maybe that people got to know that uh, I mean I was falling in if I, to get rid of him nobody would bother me now you know nobody in the world would bother me because he was like a he was like a maniac um, and uh, you know people often say to me now cool, I've heard that when you got rid of him you know what I mean and and you know I've got to be honest you know I, I was getting scared and I'm thinking to myself like, you know, then it got really personal and then I'm saying like, don't start getting personal and all that. And then I realised when I was sort of attacking him back, you know, and I've I got to be honest, I'd already worked it out, you know, there was like a fire extinguisher there and I was going to whack him around the legs because there's no way could you beat the guy. And I'm thinking, but after that, it, it, it never bothered me. But then I realised, look, I don't need that aggravation no more, you know what I mean? And they do get aggressive and offensive, but now we have a system that, you know, they go and we have security around, we help them out of the way, but it's all done in a, in, in a lovely way now, you know. I mean, my way of sacking this now is I just make a phone call and say, he needs to go, I'll get rid of her. Yeah. I mean, and we do it here instantly. If we've got someone playing up, we get them out of the building straight away. We have a system that, you know, just look, we call them in, we say, look, we're going to suspend you or we're going to call it a day. And they go, oh, when's that going now? You know, they take all their stuff out of the locker. Security's around. And it's a lovely way of doing it, if I'm being honest. They're out of the building. Um, we, we, I, I'm a great believer of only having one base, which is what we have. And I'm a great believer of having everything in-house so you can control it. Not, not on a control-freak basis, but the more that's in here, we're in control of it. So I think in the past, I had everybody else telling me what to do and telling Pimico what to do. Now we don't have that. We're in control of it. And, and I've learned that, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's why it's an happy workplace. There ain't no, there ain't no big stick tricks around here now. We don't need them, you know. I've got professional people now that, you know, do things in the right way, you know what I mean? Even I do it in the right way now, you know. Well, my right way is to make a phone call. A manager in every department, you know, we have a catering manager, account manager, PR, recruitment, transport, garage... I mean, that, the, the vehicle thing come about once we used to use a garage before we had mechanics. And, you know, I went around there one day, this was years and years ago before the recession, and he had more of my vans in his garage than what I had on the road. He's waiting for this, waiting for that. And I'm thinking, and, and it was the same old story, waiting for this, can't get on without that. And I went, honestly went there and they had more than what I got. And I said, we can't carry on like this. He's it's got us over a barrel. So I hired a mechanic, you know, which was a, a, a real gamble 
And as soon as I got my own mechanic, it, like, it changed everything. I mean, he was doing some, we was doing them, and now we've got 17 garage staff, you know what I mean? And, and I think people say to me, do you think you save and make money by it? I said, well, we didn't do it to, to save and make money, but we're in control of our van, so in result, is, yes, it, of course it saves us money, because the van's always done right, and, they're, and, and we're, they're done when we want, you know? And we have 250 vans now, and you know what I mean? There ain't a day goes by that something's not gonna go wrong, you know what I mean? And I think myself, I, I don't know if I say how clever it is, but I just think, by having that within the building, we're in control of their most important asset. No vehicle, no work, you know what I mean? They're two important assets, the vehicle uh, and their call centre. You know, so we've got the call centre here. Many times people have said to me, oh, we do your call centre. You know, I think Gasport wanted to do it once. I mean, I mean, they can't even look after their own business. Imagine them trying to look after ours. Right back in the early days, I had this idea of, you know, a clean plumber, someone that you can trust and, and, and feel comfortable with. And, you know, and then we come up with this, ponytails are very trendy. And, and uh, to be honest, how it happened, there was a, a guy came to work, and, um, you know, this guy came in with a ponytail, and, and, and I said, look, we're, we're not, it's not acceptable. And everyone started saying, you can't tell him what to wear, what to wear, or where to be. And I said to him, all I'm telling you, if you come in once more with a ponytail, I'm getting rid of you. So he said to all the other guys, I'm going to come in with a ponytail, he can't sack me, and all they came in, I got rid of him. And, um, you know, it caused a big scene on it. And then we just, that was it, no more ponytails, no more. So I stepped out from there, and we writ up a thing like the Pimlico Bible saying, you know, no ponytails, no earrings for guys, no um, facial tattoos, um, you know, and, and being a lot more presentable. And so as people was coming for the job, we were still going through the stage of, 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 you know, having to confront them and say, no. And then I come up with an idea, let's tell them on the phone before they get there, you know, no ponytail. And of course, so it got rid of a lot of people coming in that was, I'm not going to say there was necessarily going to be a problem, but it weren't the image we want. Mm -hmm. And my idea was always to tidy up the plumbing image. So, you know, plumber turns up on time. If I'm probably being honest, you know, when I was an apprentice, I was with a good company, but everywhere you went, people would say, Last people bodged the plumbing up, they didn't finish the job, they left the mess, they weren't transparent, they overcharged us, they left us a leak, and, and all these things. And, I, and, and all I come up with at the time was, if I just do the opposite to what's bad, so I always say to people, come up with 10 or 20 things that are bad in your industry, and just do the opposite. And I found that all we was really doing was the right way. We weren't really being clever, we was just doing it right. And by doing it right meant that we was head and shoulders above most people, you know, just to turn up on time. And then, you know, I've always believed that, you know, so many cronky vans out there in London and from a... I just... I don't believe that any tradesman should be allowed to drive in London uh, without a sign-written van. I don't believe that any tradesman should be allowed to go in a job without a uniform. I don't believe any tradesman should be allowed in a job without identification. You know, I just think that's just good common sense practice, you know what I mean, security-wise and, and sort of presentability-wise, yeah. Um, so the, the industry's changed a hell of a lot, you know. I mean, you know, you've seen the gas ball change their uniform to blue on the inner, and they've sort of copied us to liven it up a bit. Um, and, you know, so many other people have. So I, I would say that 
you know, if, if you haven't got a uniform now and you haven't got a sign written van and you haven't got a clean and tidy plumber, then it's you're the one that's not getting the work. I mean, the other thing now that you can tell we've got it right, um, each week 70 to 80% of our customers have used us before. So out of 2,000 jobs, that's, I don't know what, uh, 1,800 have used us before. And if someone's used you before, there's not going to be an issue. There's not an issue with money. The only, the only time we, we, we get a problem there is when we make the mistake or we, or we have dragged their rules a bit. But if we do it right, we don't have a problem. And, you know, it was never known in, in plumbing that you'll ever go back. You never used, used to work on the base. I'm never going back. I charge as much as... But we work on the bases, um, you know, that you're a Pimlico customer for life. We have someone overcharging their go, you know what I mean? We tell them about it, and if it's deliberate and they've done it again... And, you know, guys here ain't going to necessarily jeopardise their job these days, you know. I've realised all the things that, you know, if you give someone loads of money and good facilities... And, uh, you know, there's nothing better than, than what we can offer. And, you know, some guys are only 200 grand a, a year here. You know, some are 100, some are 80. Um, I think the most we had is about 220 grand for a year. Ease way. Now, who's going to jeopardise that job? You know what I mean? I mean, they still do occasionally, but the overall package, um, it can't be beat. You know, I went to a speaking event in Essex yesterday, or at Epping or something, two events we've done. There's about 300 people there, and there were so many plumbers, it was incredible. And the amount that come up, and, you know, I want to be you. And they're not talking about young kids now, you're talking about older people. And then you get other people, like two or three of them from the same company, and they're going, yeah, we're copying you. With You know, honestly, it's really as... I was amazed that, that really... As much as I've seen it for 20-odd years now, people saying it, but to see it to the scale I see the other day was just incredible. It was, to be honest, it was embarrassing, to be honest, in the end, because even people in different trades were saying, yeah, we want to be like the Charlie Mullins of the electrical business. We want to be the Charlie Mullins of iTech business. And I'm thinking, you know, I can only just turn the computer on, and you're like, you know... I was going to say, the, 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 unless you've got a big building like this and you're employing and taking on 400 people and got 250 vans, then you ain't going to be the next Charlie Mullins. We've had that over the years, and it doesn't bother me today, you know what I mean? You know, I know today that... You know, we're strong, we're big, we're the best. Uh, I'm not saying we can't be brought down, but, you know, we're growing rather than getting smaller, you know. Don't forget, there are 11 business leaders in this series, all with different stories about how they took a very simple idea and transformed it into a multi-million pound success. Sometimes traditional thinking really does pay. All of the interviews featured in Unsexy Business are also featured in my new book of the same name. There you can read the more in-depth stories behind these entrepreneurs and their impressive journeys to success. There's also one or two anecdotes that we couldn't possibly put into the podcast, along with hundreds of tips on how you can start and build a successful business too. If you get over to Amazon, you can buy a hard copy or digital version of Unsexy Business now. It is also for sale in most major bookshops, including Waterstones and WH Smith. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe on your podcast app. This means that you'll get each new episode automatically. Do join me next time, and until then, goodbye.